Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Grab your Bibles and meet me in the book of James, chapter 5. James chapter 5, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1219 in that Bible. There is a story, true story, of a man, as this story was told in multiple news outlets, a man who is a tool and die operator for a living, uh, is hanging out with some friends one night, and they are uh, having dinner, and they were having a games night. That was the plan. And so they start playing a game called Masterpiece, the art auction game. Does anyone know this game? I had never heard of this game ever. This person knows? Awesome. Uh, Any follow-up questions, you can ask Nancy afterwards. So in this game, as I understand it, it's a little bit like uh, Monopoly, except instead of trying to accumulate properties, you're trying to accumulate art. Do I have the gist of that right, Nancy? And so these cards would come up, and on the cards were paintings by different artists, and as they looked at the paintings of the artists, you would bid on it, and you would try to accumulate this great art collection. So that was the gist of the game. One of the artists who is featured in this game is a man named Martin Johnson Heed, who I had never heard of, and that's because he's not overly well-known, but he had different pieces of art that were featured in this game, and he was known for landscapes and different things, but was especially known for his paintings of flowers, and he really liked doing flowers on fabric for some reason. That was just where his gift landed. And so there were a few cards in the game that had paintings by Mr. Heed, and they were being bid on, and as they were playing, this tool and die operator who is playing this game with his friends looks at these cards and says, these look an awful lot like a painting that I have. These look an awful lot like a painting that I bought for nothing at a garage sale, and it's actually hanging in my garage. And you ask yourself, who hangs a painting in a garage? And it's because he had a huge hole in his drywall. And so he was at a garage sale, he was buying other things, and then as he was sort of cashing out, he's like, oh, how much for these paintings? They'll cover up that hole in my drywall really nicely. And so he's looking at these cards and saying, it really looks a lot like this painting that I have hanging in my garage. And so he went home and he looked at it and he thought, well, there's no harm in checking it out. And so he calls a couple of museums, he calls a couple of art dealers, and long story short, the painting that was hanging on his garage was the original long-lost work by Mr. Heed called Magnolias on Gold Velvet Cloth, because you come up with really creative titles, apparently, when you're an artist. Uh, Let's call it exactly what it is. And long story short, he sold that painting at auction for $1.25 million. An impulse buy at a garage sale literally turned him into a millionaire. And it all came about because he happened to go to that house that night and play that game with his friends. And it might not ever have come up. And so what happened with this artist, with Martin Heed, was that he was not a famous artist in his lifetime. He painted in the 1800s. He was not overly successful. He kind of made ends meet. And then he died, and throughout the 20th century, no one really heard of him or knew who he was. And yet in the last part, the last couple of decades of the 20th century, just for whatever reason, however these things work, he started to become more popular. And they started teaching him in art classes in college. And he began to become very interesting. And because he had not been that famous, he had sort of churned out works and sold them. And they were scattered all over, pla- all over the place. But especially in the 90s, all of a sudden, there was this real interest in finding the lost works of Martin Heed. 
And so while all of that is happening, this guy has no idea that the painting that is just hanging on his wall is increasing in value dramatically as time goes on. And even though it looks like nothing is happening and there's no appearance in his life that anything is happening, that thing is skyrocketing in value as it sits there waiting on the wall. And as we jump into the word this morning, we're talking about waiting today. And we're talking about when, especially waiting on God. And I would probably imagine that most of us in the room are waiting on God for something. There is something we are waiting for. We are praying for something, and we are looking to it for fulfillment. We are waiting for a new job. We are waiting for a spouse, maybe. We are waiting for a baby. We are waiting for a healing. We are waiting for a breakthrough. We are waiting for a circumstance to change. We're waiting for someone we love to come to Jesus. We are all waiting for something. Maybe we are waiting for multiple things. And there's something in our heart that we are desiring that we are waiting on God to give. Or there's something that we've read in his word that we are standing on and we are waiting for God to give it. Or there's something that he has put in our heart. There's a vision or a dream that's in there and we are waiting for that to be fulfilled. And as we wait on God, that's not always an easy thing to do. Because we read of his promises and we sing of his promises and we, we have dreams that we believe that he's given us and, and plans for our life that are, are from him and desires in our heart that we would like to see fulfilled. And you may have noticed that when those things come and we start to pray, they don't always happen right away. We are all probably waiting on God for something. And that's where our text is going today. So let's take a look. We're in James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. James writes, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's a great line to end on. So context specifically is about waiting for Jesus' return. That's what James is writing about. He's talking about while we struggle through this life and while we suffer through this life and while we are waiting, just be patient because God is going to do what he said he'd will do. Jesus will return. And even though that's the specific context, there's a lot we can learn from this about waiting in general. Whatever we are waiting for, uh, it can apply to just about anything. And so first things first, we know this even just sort of common sense. Some things just take time as we're waiting on God. Verse 7 says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. And we are somewhat removed from this because some of us here are farmers, but most of us are not. And when the New Testament was written, uh, everybody was a farmer pretty much to some extent. You all had land that you grew some food on. And so Jesus often uses farming metaphors and the apostles often use farming metaphors. And we might be a bit uh, disconnected from that. But farmers are uh, well ahead of us in the sense that they really understand the concept of seasons really well. Because their whole life and livelihood depends entirely on seasons. And so when the farmer plants the seed in the spring, what doesn't happen is the farmer doesn't go out two days later and say, where's my harvest? Come on! I guess God's not going to answer that. 
Because the farmer understands that there is a season to sow, and then there's a season to wait. But as surely as the Lord lives, there is a season of harvest that will come. And so farmers understand the rhythm of creation, and they're, they're just so tied into that all the time. They understand that what we plant today might not come quickly, but that doesn't mean it's not going to come. They understand that what we sow in faith today might not spring up tomorrow, but that doesn't mean it's never going to spring up because there are seasons to life, just like there are seasons of creation. And so we read something in God's word and we start to pray into it, or God puts a, a dream or a vision in our heart and we start to pray into it, or we sing something in a song that triggers something, yes, God, I want that for my life, and these things start to happen, but the fullness doesn't necessarily come quickly. The answer does not always come right away. There is often a season of waiting before the harvest comes in. And James says, just as you are waiting, as you are trusting, as you are persevering, just remember how the farmer looks at life. What we sow today will reap a harvest. It doesn't mean tomorrow, but the harvest will come. But we need to have an understanding of the seasons of life, that as there are seasons of harvest, before that, there's going to be seasons of waiting. There are seasons where the prayer gets answered and the blessing gets released, but there's often waiting that happens before that. And there's purpose in that, which we'll get to in a second. It's a major theme in Scripture. I would say it was one of the key themes in Scripture. As you look at all the different characters and all the different lives, we're just going to look at a few today. Uh, there is a promise of God given, and then nothing happens for a while. And then the answer comes. The promise is fulfilled. So there is a promise, and the promise does get fulfilled. But so often in Scripture, there is a season of waiting. There's a season of testing. There's a season of struggle sometimes in between. So Joseph, in the book of Genesis, has a dream. God gives him a dream, and the meaning of this dream is, Joseph, you are one day going to be a great ruler. That is the dream that God puts into his heart. David is a shepherd boy minding his own business when one day the prophet Samuel shows up and says, David, you are going to be the king of Israel. King Saul is going to be removed by God and you will be the new king. The promise of God is given to him. Abraham, even though he's an old man and childless, is told, you will have a son, and out of your line, there will be just so many offspring, it's going to be like the stars in the sky, it's going to be like the sand on the seashore, the promise of God is given to an old man, that this is what God is going to do for you. And yet, as the promise comes, and these promises are all good, and these promises are all from God, what doesn't happen is they get fulfilled quickly the next day. And what happens to these characters is actually sometimes what we find in our own lives as well, is not only does the promise not get fulfilled right away, but it actually feels like you go backwards in the opposite direction of the thing that you're praying for. So Joseph has this dream that you will one day be a great ruler, and just not long after that, he finds himself in chains, in slavery. His brothers betray him and turn him over. He finds himself enslaved and then eventually put into prison. That is not really looking like you're going to be a great ruler. It goes the opposite direction. King David is anointed. You are going to be the king of Israel. And then the, the current king hears about that and goes after David, and David spends years running for his life in the wilderness. Right? Things go backwards. Things seem to be going in the opposite direction of what the promise of God said. Abraham is told, you're going to have a son. He's 75 years old when that promise comes. Now, if there's anything that might be time-sensitive, it's a 75-year-old man who's going to have a baby. 
And a year goes by, and two years go by, and three years go by, and four and five and ten and fifteen and twenty and twenty-five years go by, and there's still no baby. He waits, and 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 he waits. And so whatever you're waiting for, are you waiting 25 years to have a baby as an old man? Just relax. Just have some patience, okay? He waits. Nothing happens. The harvest is not instant. The promise of God comes, and then there's this season of waiting, and sometimes not just waiting, but actually seemingly moving backwards, away from the promise of God that was to be fulfilled. But there's things being worked out that we never understand at the time. There are things that God is doing that we just don't comprehend because we're not God. There are pieces on the chessboard that he is moving. There is a timing that he has that is always perfect. And we say that all the time. God is never early. God is never late. His timing is always perfect. Our timing is always, I want it yesterday. But God's timing is perfect. And he is working out things that we can't possibly understand. There's a verse in Galatians talking about when Jesus came to earth. They were waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And Paul writes in Galatians that at the fullness of time, Jesus came. When the time had reached its fullness, it's great because it feels like pregnancy, that phrase. Is there any better picture of pregnancy than the fullness of time? At the perfect moment when everything had reached its fulfillment, when God knew all the pieces were in place and everything was lining up with his divine will and plan, at that fullness of time, Jesus came. Not a month earlier, not a minute later, at the perfect time, the fullness of time, Jesus came. And again, it is, a, it is very purposely a pregnancy picture. Because when a woman is pregnant, you actually don't want that baby to come early, right? I mean, you might be uncomfortable, but you want that baby to come healthy. That's, that's the top priority. And, and I remember when we were pregnant with Kaylee, it was our first Sarah saying to me, you know, God has set up this whole pregnancy thing really smart because she said, you know, you're, you're worried about labor, when it, especially when it's your first one. You don't know what to expect, and you've heard about the pain, and you've heard about all this stuff, and Sarah's saying, like, oh, I'm not looking forward to the pain. I'm not looking forward to, you know, being half naked in a room full of strangers. I don't want to do any of that part. But by the time 40 weeks rolls around, she's going, oh, just get it out of me. I don't care. I'll be naked in front of everybody. Just get it out. There is a fullness of time to the promises of God where you wait and you wait and you wait. Right through nine months of pregnancy, you wait and you wait and you wait. But then there's a moment where everything shifts and the fullness of time has arrived. The moment has arrived. The time has arrived. And when a woman is pregnant, again, you don't want the baby to show up three months early. You don't want the baby to show up late. You want that baby to show up at just the right time. You want it to happen just as it is right and ordained, and it is true of the promises of God. And so the God who created the seasons, the God who created this form of pregnancy is the God of the perfect timing, and he is who we put our trust in when we're waiting. We trust that I would like it faster, but I'm going to put my trust that God actually knows what he's doing and that there is a fullness of time that is coming. And when it's coming, the harvest will come, and my job in the meantime is to wait. And so just like expectant parents wait with anticipation, we wait with anticipation. When is my answer coming, Lord? When is that promise going to be fulfilled? We will sometimes have to wait for that. But as we do that, how we wait 
is crucial. What we do in that waiting season is unbelievably important. James writes, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another. He throws in uh, a little character comment. Don't grumble, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. While you are waiting, your job is to be patient and stand firm. Be patient and trust him. Stand firm in what you believe. Do what you know you're supposed to do. Don't grumble against each other, which is one comment. Just watch your character in this time. Don't get frustrated, and that's so easily what we can do. When I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and frustrated and frustrated, it's easy to turn on someone else. James says, don't do that. Don't turn on each other while you are waiting. Don't turn that frustration against another person. Be patient and stand firm. How we wait is crucial. When the farmer plants the seed in the ground, there's a season of waiting. But in that season of waiting, the farmer still has work to do, right? We are tending to the soil. We are keeping an eye on the seed. We are doing weeds. We are doing everything we need to do on our end to make sure that this seed is safe. We do have a role to play even while we are waiting. Jesus tells a parable. He tells it in a few different ways throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 25, it's called the parable of the talents traditionally. Uh, more modern versions call it the parable of the bags of gold. And the story is that there is a rich man, and he goes away on a journey, and as he leaves, he calls three of his servants before him, and he gives one of them five bags of gold, and one of them two bags of gold, and one of them one bag of gold, and says, I'm going away, and I'm going to be coming back. And so the master leaves, and as he leaves, the one with the five bags takes the money and he invests it. It doesn't say what he does, but he puts it to work, Scripture says. And out of that investment of five bags of gold, he earns five more bags of gold. And the one with two bags of gold goes and takes it and he puts it to work. He invests it, and he gets two more bags of gold back on top of the two he already had. And then the one who had the one bag of gold uh, was too scared to do anything with it, didn't want to take a risk, and so he just took it and he hid it. Uh, so he didn't lose it, but he didn't gain anything with it. And scripture says that the master comes back, as Jesus tells the story, and he asks his servants to come and give an account. And the one who had the five bags says, Master, look, I put it to work. I gained five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And the one with two bags of gold comes back. I've gained two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then the last servant comes back and says, I didn't do anything with it. I, here's your original investment back, but I didn't do anything. And the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. That was not what this was about. He says, take that gold, give it to the first servant, and throw this servant outside. And it's startling a little bit. And in the other version in Luke's gospel, when it tells the story, the, the master says, you know, you've been faithful with this. You take charge of these ten cities because you've been faithful with this gold. You take charge of this five, these five cities because you've been faithful. And, and it's just such a picture of the testing that God puts us through that we often don't even know were being tested on. They didn't know that cities were on the line in this test. They didn't know that the master was going to come back and say, you were faithful with a little bit of money. I'm going to put you in charge of many things because you've proven yourself faithful with a little. So now I know I can trust you with more. They didn't know any of that. But while they were waiting, there was testing going on that they did not understand. And one of them failed the test, obviously, because he was not faithful with what he had been given. 
The others had been given something, and they were faithful to use it. The one was not faithful at all with what he had been given. And Jesus says elsewhere, if you are faithful with little, you can be trusted with much. And sometimes we want the big score or the big ministry or the big whatever, and we're not being faithful with the little. We're not being faithful with what we already have in our life. So God can't trust us with more. In the waiting, there is stuff going on that we don't understand. And sometimes we treat the waiting season like we're in a waiting room at the doctor's office. And when you're in the waiting room at the doctor's office, you're not typically making great use of your time. You're killing time, right? You're reading an eight-year-old magazine that's sitting on the table, and you're, you're just waiting. So let's just get this over with. It's not typically looked at as really useful time. We're killing time. And when we're waiting on God, sometimes we take on that same attitude. We're just killing time until the blessing comes. And when the blessing comes, that's when my life will really begin. When my spouse finally arrives, that's when my life will really begin. When our kids finally are born, that's when life will really begin. If I could just get this job, if I could just get this ministry, when my healing finally comes, that's when my life will really begin. And we take on this attitude that we're just killing time until the blessing comes. And that's just a phenomenal waste of time. Abraham waited 25 years for the baby. You don't want to just kill time for 25 years. And it's not that the blessing isn't going to bring great things and not that, you know, when, when these things happen, they're not going to release a new level of joy in our life or whatever. But we don't want to just be killing time because God is there to meet us in the waiting. He is there to walk with us in the waiting. There is joy available in the waiting. There is peace available in the waiting. It's there for us. Our job is to stand firm and to push through. But God is working things out that we don't always see at the time. Sarah and I have a friend uh, who was in ministry for many years and pastored at different churches around Ontario and then uh, just went through some personal crisis. And as he went through that, He was out of ministry for a little while, and just in the last few years, he has felt like, I want to get back into ministry again, and so he's starting to apply different places, but he's not doing any ministry. Like, he hasn't done any ministry in years, uh, hasn't really attended a church in years, and so mutual friends are saying to him, okay, you don't have your job yet, but I mean, you love youth, you love worship, why don't you just help out at a church and just keep connected to the youth and, and keep serving and using your gifts? But he won't, because he's waiting for his job. He's waiting for the position. And, and the mutual friends are saying, like, just maybe if you are faithful with what you have, God will see that faithfulness, and you'll be ready for a promotion to the next thing. But he's just holding out for that, that big position. He wants the job, and he won't do it otherwise. And, and some of you are shaking your heads as we do this, and th- I feel the same way. Yet, don't just make it about that guy. Where are we doing that? in our lives, where we are waiting on God and just killing time until it actually happens. When we're waiting on God, there's purpose in the process of the waiting. There are things happening. And just like that painting hung on a wall, the guy had no idea anything was going on, and yet that painting was skyrocketing in value. You plant a seed in the ground, for a long time, it doesn't look like anything is going on. You look at the soil, it looks exactly the same as it did yesterday. It doesn't look like anything is happening, but as that seed is under the soil, if you could see it with an x-ray, an unbelievable amount of activity is actually happening under the surface. 
right? Remember that time-lapse thing you used to watch in school, right? The seed is opening up and roots are starting to go down and the roots are taking root and they're going deep and it takes a long time because the roots need to go deep or else it's not going to stand up. And then the shoot slowly starts to come up and then one day you walk past the soil and there's a little bitty green thing sticking out. And you go, all that time waiting for that? That was... It looked like nothing was happening, but there was a lot going on. And when we're in this waiting season, we're waiting for the healing. We're waiting for the breakthrough. We're waiting for the deliverance. We're waiting for whatever. I promise you there is a tremendous amount of things going on in your life that you might not see, but that God is working out in your heart and that he is working out in your spirit and that he's working out in your mind, that he's working out in your character. There are things that we can't see when we're in it. Other people sometimes have an easier time seeing. And I've been in waiting seasons where I've waited years for things and my parents would just sort of knowingly look at me and just say, we're really excited for all the stuff God's doing in your life right now. And I'm going, he's not doing anything. What are you talking about? But they could see it. It looked like nothing was happening, but under the surface there was so much going on. When Joseph gets put into prison, he's in chains, and he gets sold into slavery first, uh, and he, he gets put in a household, and then he gets framed for something, he gets sent to prison. And as he goes into these places, he is given some work to do. Just as a prisoner, as a slave, he's given work, and he does his work well. And so he kind of gets promoted within the prison, and he eventually ends up sort of running the prison as, as an administrator, as, uh, as a prisoner still, but working to, to help lead the thing. And... For 13 years, he's in chains. 13 years from the time the promise is given until the promise is fulfilled. And yet through all of it, he is learning how to lead. He is learning how to administrate. He is learning how to get people to follow him. He is learning how to sell a vision. He is learning humility because he was a bit cocky at the beginning of the story. Uh, so his character is being formed. He's learning and, and being formed in all of these ways that are going to be crucial when he actually does become the ruler of Egypt. He's learning what he needs to learn to carry the blessing that is coming. David, as he runs for his life in the wilderness, he spends years uh, running from Saul and being pursued by Saul. And similarly, he learns in those years how to lead an army. He learns how to lead men. He learns how to fight. He learns how to trust God. He learns uh, even just the terrain of his countryside. This is going to be important later when he's the king over this land because he's going to know the land really, really well in the future. And he's learning to trust that God has said he's going to do something, but it's going to be God who makes it happen. He's not making himself the king of Israel. God is going to be the one who brings this about, and so he learns to put his hope and trust in God. And for years this happens, and his character and his gifting and his skills get formed so that he's actually ready to carry the anointing that God has promised to put on his life. But the waiting had to happen first, or he wouldn't have been ready. Abraham waits, as we've talked about. He waits, and he waits, and he waits. And, you know, he's 75 years old when the promise is given. He's 100 when the baby is actually born. His wife is 90 when the baby is born. Babies are not born to couples who are 190. That just doesn't happen. It's physically impossible for that to happen. Menopause is over. It's done. The, the baby season is safely over when you're that age. And yet... As Abraham waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and waits. Later, Abraham is given the father of all faith because he trusted God. And scripture says he did not waver with unbelief, even though his body was as good as dead, Paul writes in Romans. 
He put his hope in God. He did not waver in unbelief, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And so he is given the title, the father of all who believe. And by the time the baby showed up, there is absolutely no question that God made that baby happen. It wasn't Abraham's idea. God was the one making this happen. And he gets this amazing title forever because of that. Waiting on God is not passive, it's preparation. It's not killing time. It's not just, all right, Lord, I'm ready any minute now. There is a preparation happening to get you ready for whatever it is you're waiting on God for. It's not passive. And we make a grave error when we do that, when we just take that time and just, all right, well, it's just going to be the same old thing today, and nothing's ever changing, and that's the way it's going to be. And like, no, there's a preparation happening so that you are prepared to carry the blessing that he has for you. And so James says, in light of all of this, be inspired by the heroes of the faith. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Finally brought about, not right away. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Verse 10 and 11 of our text today. Be inspired by the heroes. And he uses Job as an example. And Job went through suffering, and Job waits on God. But the Lord finally brings about blessing and restoration and redemption and healing in Job's life. And we've talked about a few of them, and we could have talked about many more. Joseph does become the ruler over the, the civilized world, essentially, at the time. He waits 13 years for the promise to be fulfilled, but it happens. David does become the king of Israel. Uh, between 15 and 20 years, he waits for his promise. We don't know exactly how long, but a long time between the promise and the fulfillment. Abraham does get his son. He waits 25 years for the promise. James wraps up this section by saying the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Remember who your Lord is while you're waiting. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The promises are fulfilled. He will be as good as his word. The one who promised you is faithful, and he will do it. And so we put our trust in that even in the waiting, and even if it feels like we're moving backwards, and even when year stretches into year sometimes, and we haven't seen the fulfillment, we still put our trust in God, and we're inspired by those who have gone before us because they have walked the same road that we walk, and God was faithful to them. And there is a day that comes, and it could be today, where God looks at our waiting, and he looks at our life, and he looks at what we've been holding on for, and there is a day that comes when he says, no more delay, today's the day that this comes to fulfillment for you. If I was in a Pentecostal church, I can't describe the shouting that would be happening <laughs> in this moment right now. No more delay gets spoken over our lives. And the promise is fulfilled. The harvest comes just as surely as September and October are coming on the calendar, and harvest is coming for our farmers. The harvest comes. And our job is to push through. Our job is to trust. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. So what do we do with all this then? That's, that's the theory, the theology of it. What's our role while we are in the season of waiting? First of all, be faithful with what you have. 
It's not to say that there's not more to come, but be faithful with what you have while you are waiting. We are being tested in the waiting season, and our job is to be faithful, to demonstrate to God that we are are ready, that we are going to be faithful, because Jesus said if you're faithful with little, you can be trusted with much, but you got to prove yourself faithful with the little first. So do what you know you're supposed to be doing while you're waiting. Use your gifts in the way that you know you should be using them. And it might not be the fullness of how you'll use them, but use your gifts. Serve others. Bless others. Work on being a good spouse. Work on being a good parent. Work on being a good friend. Work on being a good son or a good daughter. Be faithful with what you have. Uh, because God can't give us more if we're not faithful with the little. He says, be faithful with little, and you can be trusted with much. Check the attitude as we go through the waiting season. Israel comes out of Egypt, right? You remember the story. God delivers them out of Egypt with signs and wonders, the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, everything. Israel gets delivered, and they are wandering in the desert. They are waiting for the promised land. God has said, I'm going to bring you into a land just your own. They are waiting for this, and they are wandering, and they are wandering, they are wandering. And as they come out of the land, almost right away, they start to grumble and complain. And almost right away, they say, oh, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt just for us to die in the desert? And they would grumble some more. They would wander some more. God, why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? We should go back to Egypt. At least we were safe there. God, why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? They say it over and over and over again. And in Numbers 14, finally, God says, all right, by your words, that will be fulfilled. This generation will die in the desert. Your children will get to go to the promised land, but by your own words, it will be done to you. It wasn't God's idea for that generation to die in the desert. They kept saying it. They kept grumbling. They kept complaining over and over and over again. And finally, God said, fine. If you don't trust me, if you don't have the faith, if after everything I've done for you, if you really don't see my goodness, if you really don't see, fine. And as consequence of that, you won't get to see the promised land. I'll be faithful to my promise to the generations, but this generation will not see it. And it's, it's a wake-up story, because how many times have I grumbled? How many times have I said, this will never change, right? And we don't want to be the people who say, this will never change, my healing will never come, my spouse will never come, my job will never come, and say that to the point where one day God finally says, all right, fine, by your words, that's what's going to happen. The tongue has the power of life and death, Scripture says. And so we got to watch our attitude because Israel grumbled their way out of the blessing. That wasn't what God wanted for them. He makes that so clear. I wanted the promised land for you. That's why I did all this stuff. But we can grumble ourselves out of the blessing. So watch our attitude when James writes to the people. He says, don't grumble, guys. Do not do that. Don't fall into that trap while you're waiting. Waiting is hard, but watch your attitude as we do so. So we're faithful with what we have. We watch our attitude while we're waiting. And then we look to God for more. We look to God for what else there is. We look to God for that dream that he put in our hearts. We look to God for the promise of his word to be fulfilled. We look to God for that prayer to be answered. We look to him for more. And we have faith that there is more because God is good. We've been singing about it all morning. He's good and he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And there is purpose in the waiting. There is purpose in the testing. We don't ever want to just be satisfied 
with where we're at. And my goodness, we don't ever want to be okay with the suffering in our lives. I think sometimes we get a messed up view of suffering where we go, well, that's just my cross to bear. I'm just getting the, just getting what I deserve. And so I'm just going to be in this place my whole life. And you go, no, no. I mean, however long you're there, don't ever be okay with being there. Keep pushing forward. Keep fighting through. Keep calling upon God. I don't see anywhere in scripture where we're just supposed to be okay with sickness or okay with whatever. We look to God for more. If you have questions on any of this, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. We'd love to keep chatting with you. People do send questions in just about every week, and we have really good conversations about Scripture and God and life and all those things. So we're happy to keep that conversation going. Even Jesus had to struggle. Even Jesus had to wait. Even Jesus had to suffer. And Jesus knows what it feels like to feel like God is far away. He cries out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you forgotten me? Jesus knows what that feels like. And yet, as Jesus goes through his suffering, and as all of creation has been waiting for this moment to happen, where Jesus goes to the cross, says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, scorning it. He wasn't okay with his suffering. He wasn't all right with that. But he looked past that to the joy on the other side. And that's the beauty of this for all of us who walk with Jesus is that whatever we are struggling through, the darkest of stories always ends in resurrection for us. It always ends in resurrection. That is the end of the story for Jesus and for those who follow Jesus. And that is where our hope lies, that whatever, however dark it gets, resurrection is always the end of the story. Years ago, I was in a, a dark season, a waiting season. I was waiting for everything. I was younger and I was single and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I, I didn't know uh, what my career was gonna be and, and if I was gonna get married ever. And so it was, I kind of felt like I was waiting for a lot. And I had been off at school, and that didn't work out, so I had to move back home with my parents. And, and my parents are great, don't get me wrong. Um, but it was hard as a young man to move back home. It felt like a defeat. It felt like a retreat, that I, I was off, going to do exciting things, and now I was back home, and I just felt hidden and, and lonely. And I was in that place for a year. And I came up to the altar one Sunday uh, for prayer, and someone was praying with me, and they didn't know my situation at all which is always kind of cool when this happens. And she just said, I just really feel like the Lord uh, just has a word for you this morning. God's just put something in my heart to share with you. And she said, wine is just grape juice until it's sat on the shelf for a while. And, and I'm not a wine expert. I don't really understand how it all works. But she said, wine is just grape juice until it sits aside for a while. And as it sits aside, it doesn't look like anything's happening at all. But inside, there is a tremendous transformation happening. There is all sorts of change happening. And the longer it sits, actually, the better the wine is. And so she didn't know what I was going through, but that just meant so much in that time. And it's been such a formative word for my life and, and an encouragement for me that, yeah, it doesn't always look like lots is going on. But... When it looks like nothing's going on in my life, when it looks like I'm waiting and nothing's happening, when it looks like the answer isn't coming, when it looks like it's going to be delayed even longer, when it looks like these things are not coming to pass, God is actually just making some really good wine in my life. There are good things going on, and I will enjoy that 
at the proper time in the fullness of time. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close? We're going to worship a little bit more, and then we'll pray to close off. Father, thank you for your words, and Lord, we pray that as we move forward and as we as we walk with you in the tough seasons and the sad seasons in the seasons where we don't see the blessing where we don't see the answer lord that we would remember the heroes who have gone before us we would remember the teachings of your servant james that we've read today lord that we would look to you always and that we would let you and your word dictate our faith not our circumstance not our struggle but that we would look to you and as we cry out to you that you would come near to us and that like we are called to do here, Lord, we would stand firm, we would persevere, we would press through, we would trust you. Thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for the promise of your word. Bless your people today as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're up here to pray. If anyone wants to pray, other than that, God bless you. We will see you next Sunday.